HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, all right. It is Monday. It's 12 o'clock. I was going to say 1. I don't know why. But it is 12 o'clock. <laughs> You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. And uh, we're going to be talking about the cattle industry today. But before we start with that, we are going to review our joys and sorrows for the week. Um, so I have some very cool stories to talk about. First of all, one of my favorite things that I read about this week was the fact that over 50 Portland restaurants have c- committed to donating 10% of their sales receipts on a one or two day basis. I think it was just this past weekend, but over 50 restaurants gave all that money from one day sales receipts to the ACLU. Why? Well, guess what? Because the ACLU is going to help them preserve their workforce because let's face it, without our, um, Latin American friends working in restaurants, fields, farms across the country, we will see a collapse of our food industry. So um, we need to donate to the ACLU because we need to have them defend against this ridiculous immigration ban. So um, that's my first joy of the week. Um, my second joy is the women's strike that's going to be um, coming up. That has been planned for March 8th. This will be a general strike with women refraining from work, from shopping, or otherwise contributing to our economy. I'm hoping that it will generate the same kind of enthusiasm that the Women's March on Washington did in February, um, because if it doesn't generate the same kinds of numbers, I think a lot of women could face penalties at their workplace, and that's a real concern for everyone. But um, assuming as many of us turn out. Um, of course, I can say this very comfortably because I don't have a real job. Um, <laughs> it makes it a lot easier to go on strike, you know what I mean? <laughs> but um, but the fact is, is that there's safety in numbers, I hope. Um, I know that there were people who were penalized for um, 
participating in a day without immigrants last week. Uh, there were several reports of people being terminated from their jobs for being participants in that, even though uh, I think they must have been under the impression that it would have been okay. I don't know. But anyway, that did happen. So um, put that uh, date in your book, in your, in your memory book, in your address, in your <laughs> calendar. And uh, that was March 8th. So be there or be square. Um, then I wanted to talk about a sorrow. I have a wonderful friend named Eric Hoffner who used to uh, be a major contributor and did something very interesting for Orion Magazine, a magazine which I still love. Are you guys, is anybody familiar with Orion Magazine? It's a nonprofit magazine that combines uh, original writing and photography, um, but sort of focuses on environmental and food themes in a very tasteful way. It's a beautifully produced magazine, and uh, it does takes no advertising, so it really does rely completely on uh, subscriptions, and I highly recommend it. Anyway, Eric, you to be a major power there, and he left to run another business. Um, but he's also a photographer and an entrepreneur and a writer, and he was kind enough to clue me into a really terrific set of articles um, <clears throat> in Manga Bay. I don't know if you've ever looked at that publication, but again, something online that's very worthwhile. And there are several er- series on the development uh, that is going on in the Amazon. You know, Brazil is not only a major producer of beef and pork, um, but especially beef. Uh, But it is also a major producer of soy, which is a primary feed added or feed uh, component for uh, all cattle, pigs and chicken, chickens. And um, they are planning to bump that production way up to feed not only its own, their own cattle, pigs and chickens, but um, the world's cattle's pigs and chickens. So plans are afoot to completely alter the structure of the Amazon and adjacent rivers uh, in order to streamline delivery of soy to the coasts for export. And by streamlining that, I mean a series of dams, locks, um, dredging, uh, all kinds of really uh, disastrous-sounding developments in this very sensitive ecological area and really could be disastrous, not only just for Brazil and the Amazon, but honestly for the entire world, because as we all know, the Amazon is our major carbon sink. Um, it's where a lot of the greenhouse gases are uh, sort of essentially um, neutralized. And so without the uh, the thick forest canopy and, and all of the ancillary things that go along with keeping the ecosystem going there, um, this could be a truly disastrous uh, development for the country and for the rest of us. Um, so I, I would recommend taking a look at that article. It's uh, Again, the name of the publication is Mangabe, M-O-N-G-A-B-A-Y. Um, and I thought, you know, it was a fascinating piece. And um, and I'm sure there will be more, more components to come. But it was, you know, Cargill is a major player down there besides the Brazilians themselves. And of course, Brazil has the stated purpose, their company, JBS, um, has the stated purpose of becoming the largest meat supplier in the world. And they are fast on track. They are on track to do that. Um, and part of that includes growing a lot more corn and soy. And this is also we can have cheap meat, folks. That, that is, There is no other reason for this but to keep prices low in the meat department. So um, there's got to be a better system. And, uh, and this is something we need to pay attention to. Um, and lastly, and here's my favorite little bit of news. Um, This was great. This was mentioned in Paul Krugman's uh, column today for the New York Times. But it appears that Kansas, and I know that (laughs) that you 
Those who listen regularly know that I just love to dwell on the disaster that is known as the state of Kansas at the hands of uh, that unspeakable moron, Sam Brownback, the governor there. Um, He has been forced to throw in the towel on his quote-unquote trickle-down economic plan, which is a throwback to the Reagan years. And um, he has his government is essentially, his legislature has essentially gone against him, and they have now levied a massive tax hike on uh, consumers essentially through personal income tax. So the state is facing, get this, a $1.1 billion economic shortfall, which will last through June of 2019. So in the meantime, they are going to be engaging in all kinds of jiggery pokery in the form of internal government borrowing. I don't know what that means, but I expect it means stealing from pension funds um, and <laughs> various other components, not to mention the, uh, the various um, aid programs that will go down the drain as well. And they're going to be have to start doing that in June because the tax hike won't really start taking effect for another year. So um, just to remind you that this, once again, is the Republicans uh, persisting in touting a crazy idea that slashing taxes makes millionaires spend more money locally. It just doesn't happen that way. It never has and it never will. But I still hear this ridiculous theory dribbling out of the mouths of all sorts of lackwits, including our Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, who loves to talk about trickle-down economics and slashing taxes. So in, in states, for example, California raised taxes, and guess what? They're doing great. Everybody's doing great. The, the unemployment rate is low. Uh, infrastructure is being repaired. You know, things are happening in California, which, by the way, <clears throat> I noticed today in the Wall Street Journal is threatening to – there is a group that is threatening to secede from the rest of the United States. And while I would uh, really mourn the loss of California, I can't help but <laughs> feel that they may be on to something. (laughs) Anyway, that's it for Joys and Sorrows. We'll be back in just a second with um, Mike Calicrate from the Calicrate Beef Company. We're going to talk about the industry in general and uh, farming in particular. And um, until then, stay tuned and we'll be listening to a short sponsor drop starting now. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org.
This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, Today, we're going to chat with Mike Calicrate. Um, He is an independent cattle producer, business entrepreneur, and political activist. He serves as an outspoken leader in addressing the rural, social, and cultural impacts of current economic trends. And since the mid-1990s, Mike has been actively involved in social and political efforts to improve the welfare of family farms and to restore effective publicity-regulated markets. Hold your horses there, Mike. Mike. Um, He was a founding member of several farm advocacy groups, including the Organization for Competitive Markets, RCAF, and the Kansas Cattlemen's Association. He also was a lead plaintiff in a class-action lawsuit against the world's largest meatpacker, IBP, which is now owned by Tyson Foods, alleging unfair and discriminatory marketing practices. And that's the sum and substance of what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks a lot for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Katie. It's a pleasure. You know, we met at, I don't know if you remember, we met at um, Chef's Collaborative Summit a few years ago. I think Greg Gunthorpe introduced us. I don't know if you recall oh, that. Yeah, okay. yeah. Great guy. One of my favorites. Yeah, um, good friend. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. He's really, he's a super guy and expanding madly, like amazing. Yeah. I'm a Facebook well, friend. Well, he's got and, those kids coming back and, he, you know, you got yeah. to accommodate them. Yeah. <laughs> you got to make sure they have an opportunity. <laughs> That's right. And he's doing it. I mean, he's built a huge, uh, what is that facility that he's built? It's like like an aging, is he making hams or something? Yeah, he's got a ham cave, or, yeah. or you know, a, uh, a curing cave that he right. just finished. And yeah, Greg's got an amazing operation there. He, Greg can show how real money can be made on a on a on a small farm. I mean, if you look at his mm. his income per acre, it's like thirty six times more income per acre than the typical industrial farm. Wow. Well, we're going to... by adding value and, and yeah. by going multi-species with some intensive uh, management. That's right. Well, Mike, we're going we're gonna to focus on you right now, but I mean, I have the feeling that you're kind of in the same mold as Greg Gunthorpe. So uh, first of all, give us a, a thumbnail of Calicate Cradle and, and Calicrate Cattle. Sorry, how, to see, how do you say that three times fast? Um, yeah. And, and what, what, you know, you run the same kind of business, right? Even though you don't do multi-species, you have added value products to your... Well, well, I do. I do mm-hmm. do multi-species. In fact, oh, I, didn't realize you know, there's, I think I can think of three, actually three operations in the United States today that are doing what Greg Gunthorpe, myself, and, and Will Harris right. do. And White that is, pastures. And yeah. that is, it's really a farm to fork. Uh, with slaughtering the livestock right where they're at on the farm. So we process right where the animals are, and we go all the way to the very end where we sell as as close to retail, if not as in retail, uh, and directly to the consumer. And and so basically what we've done is we've built a model of of production that that goes outside of the the concentrated uh, industrial kind of factory farm uh, Cisco distribution, mm-hmm. Walmart retail kind of model that has left farmers far, far short of, of a living income in, in our country and honestly around the world. And so yeah. in about 1990, I realized that I was really playing in a fool's game, having left Colorado State University with an animal science degree and, and built a feedlot in 1978 and struggled to, to, to make money and saw the markets go up and down and, and for no reason just, you know, causing cattle producers uh, massive losses just time after time throughout those years. And 
And finally, by, by 1990, I realized it was really meat packer concentration. And the big meat packers had decided to cooperate rather than compete, putting the small packers out of business. Right. And in a partnership with big retail, really just dictating price back down the line to those who produce, the, the, the family farmers, the ranchers, the feedlots, mm-hmm. the, the people who really uh, put up the capital and take the risk in the business were, were receiving they're far, far less of their share of what consumers spent for meat than they had previously before the the, the big four packers really took over and, and achieved an 85% control of the of the industry. 85% four firm control. Yeah. Never, never before in history had the market become so concentrated. And so, and so by 1996, we we filed the lawsuit against IBP, which is now Tyson, and uh, and and by 1998. They had blackballed me, and I, <clears throat> I had a twelve thousand head feedlot at St. Francis, with it, which I still own, uh-huh. and and uh, they, I could not sell my cattle anymore, and so I was forced to close that feedlot down. Fifteen people went to town without uh, without a job, and mm-hmm. and I sat on that for about a year, and I decided, you know, we can legislate, we can litigate, but you know what we really also need to do is come up with an alternative food system that is non-industrial, mm-hmm. that rather than, with, than apply animal science, let's apply animal husbandry mm-hmm. and stewardship in, in our farming, ranching, and, and you know, livestock uh, operations. And, and let's create the ideal model uh, for, for the farmer, for the livestock, for the land, and for the consumer. And so I started Ranch Foods Direct. Uh, we shipped our first animals to Colorado Springs for processing in June of 2000. And so we've been around now about 17, going on 17 years. Now, how did you find a packer then? After you'd been blackballed, how were you able to find a packer as Ranch uh, Direct Foods? Well, Colorado Springs had a small packer by the name of G&C Packing Company, just a small little local kind of packer that took care of Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. And and so that's where we got our first animals processed. Since then, though, we've moved our, our, our animal processing to the farm in St. Francis, Kansas. So we control it all now. We don't depend on any other entity anywhere to do anything for us. And that's very, very important because if you don't control all of it, you're subject to the predatory practices of these of big food, which is, you know, the big meat packers, the big retailers, the big food service companies that absolutely do not want competition. Right. And 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 so you've got to build that that pathway yourself. And and you and and not very many people can do it. Uh, I was blessed uh, with a company called Noble Enterprises, which manufactures and markets the Calicrate Bander, which has been around since 1991. So I had outside income, so I could invest in company in a company like Ranch Foods Direct. And now we have a food hub here in Colorado Springs called Peak the Plains Food Distributing, which really is intends to make it much po- more possible for. The ranchers, the farmers within our region around the Colorado Springs, Denver, Pueblo area to access the market. So we we are the logistics for for processing and distribution for the and and simply provide that that transportation piece and and that connection piece without buying and selling the product. Our intention is to increase income at the farm and ranch gate as much as we possibly can. Mm-hmm while giving the consumer the best possible food from their local area. That builds the health of our, of our 
of our population, and, but it also builds the economic uh, health of our of our region in keeping that money at home, oh, sure. rather than having a big packer come in and buy below cost of production and handing it off to to the Walmart organization. Right, right. Uh, we we keep that money in our community. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what what does how much is what's the price differential between what you are producing and what um, say uh, you know a JBS or a Tyson can offer in terms of uh, retail? Well, I'm not sure there is much of a price differential. Uh, uh, when you consider that today a, a steer uh, or a heifer weighing 1,350 pounds, which is sort of the average USDA slaughter weight, is worth $3,300 at the at the Walmart meat counter, oh. there is a lot of money there. And and really, our intention is to to try to increase the the, the share that goes to the ranch or the or the the, the livestock operation as much as we can. So the money is really there. You don't have to charge more. Uh, than what retail is currently, but but when you when you do not externalize your costs, when you when you accept all of the costs of production, uh, and I, I'm talking about paying a fair price for the grain that, that's fed to the livestock, a fair mm-hmm. price for the pasture that's consumed, you know, a fair price to the working uh, people that that take care of the livestock as well as process it, and 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 you know to finally get it onto our plates. Uh, when you don't externalize environmental costs, uh, you, and when you don't use performance-enhancing drugs, mm-hmm. uh, the, and these are the drugs that the big industrial uh, operators use, sure. that costs you $200 a head in, in, in just the loss of performance. And, and right. they'll, they'll have a 150-pound bigger animal by the time it's market-ready than, than, our, than our approach of no performance-enhancing drugs. And, and so you, you, by the time you figure all that out, and you apply that to the cost of production, you're still, there is so much money that the big retailers and packers are taking from us that there's still plenty of room. And, and you, you honestly uh, can, can keep your prices pretty much in line with retail. Where you really get in trouble is when the Cisco's and the big retailers' predatory price, uh, when, the, when they sell below their cost, to put you off the shelf and out of out of a restaurant. I see. And and, and you know there should be laws that, that that should be enforced. But you know our government has sort of taken the dereg uh, sort of approach oh, yeah. to big business. You know we talk about how bad regulations are, but let me tell you they don't enforce the laws that are on the books and and over enforce and abusively enforce other laws that put the small operators out of business. No question and, and, about and, that. And so. But the other thing is, if you don't use performance-enhancing drugs with cattle production, your product is so much higher in quality. For example, our chuck steak, our chuck eye steak, will eat better than anybody else's ribeye. Mm-hmm. You know, our sirloin eats better than the fillet uh, from from the industrial model of production. Yeah. And and when and when you consider our ground beef, if you buy a cow pool or you can buy an eighth or a quarter. Or, or or a, a half of a gram of a of an animal, yeah. you're going to have one animal represented in that package of hamburger. And you take the typical quarter pound hamburger at McDonald's in 1998, contained over a thousand different DNA in that <laughs> in that quarter pound hamburger. Ooh, patty. yummy! And now, of course, it contains fillers like pink slime sure. and meat from anywhere in the world. You don't have a clue where it's from. The other thing that the big guys are doing now. To really disadvantage local producers is they are bringing in imported meats yeah. from the cheapest 
sources on the planet. Right now, that's South America. Yeah. Secretary Vilsack opened that border up. And, of course, that, that gave the green light to the meat packers. Whether they imported one pound of it or not, to totally destroy the price of, of cattle at the farm and ranch gate. And, and so they're, they're bringing in product today from South America that's 30-some percent cheaper than what we are selling for at these deep, deep losses to cattle producers today. So, uh, and, and, that the, and one, things that, one of the things that really was important to enable that and facilitate this price decline to the ranch is is the is the repeal of country of origin labeling? Yeah, we yeah and, I want to talk so about you that. You cannot tell where right. your food comes from. You as an eater today are being denied the right to know where your food comes from, and that's all based upon big meat packers not wanting us to know. But in in partnership with Congress to repeal country of origin labeling, even though ninety five percent of consumers want it. You know, oftentimes they, they think they've already got it with the USDA grant of inspection uh, that's mm-hmm. applied to the product. But that doesn't mean that it came from the U.S. No. It only means that USDA was involved in, in, in some sort of an inspection. Right, right. And, and so, yeah, but so Mike, I'm going to stop you for one second. don't know where it comes from. They can't buy local and U.S. raised product if they wanted to in, in the way of beef and pork. That's right. And, and, so, and so this is really a tragic Situation, you know, we we woke up uh, this fall uh, and and to a calf market that was half price. Yeah. At the same time as consumers overall were paying the same prices for retail beef. Now the USDA reports a fresh beef price that that's a, that's like eight percent lower, but that does not include all of the branded product. From Ranchers Reserve and Cattlemen's Collection and right. Star Ranch, which is one of Tyson's brands, and it doesn't include sure. the Aspen Ridge, which Chairman is a JBS brand, or Sterling uh-huh. Silver, which is right. a Cargill brand. Right, right. Those didn't go down in price, and and so really, the this is this tragedy to the to the ranch is also getting in the consumers' pockets. Uh, so what we've got is just like we had during the days of the robber barons when Upton Sinclair wrote the book The Jungle. Yeah. Uh, in the you know the day of the, the day of those robber barons when when they were standing between producers on one hand and and consumers on the other and taking stealing really the money that that should be in a producer's pocket and should be a, represent a savings to consumers. So we've got a, basically a monopoly in, yeah, it's in a cartel, place today. Right? It's in, a cartel. In the cattle business. Four and, big and, packers control the entire market. Isn't that right? Exactly. You said 85% exactly. of the market is controlled in, by four big packers, and they are the ones. Well, that, that leads me to two things I wanted to bring up while I've got you, have you on pause for a moment. Um, <laughs> You're like Bill Bullard, man. You guys, you, you wind you guys up, man, in. and you just cannot stop. But I wanted to point out to you that when cool was repealed, one of the reasons that it was repealed was because under the NAFTA, under the WTO, uh, the World Trade Organization ruling, and under the terms of NAFTA, we were going to have to pay Canada and Mexico upwards of $3 billion in fines. And that, I think, is why Congress caved on cool. 
I mean, it wasn't no, just isn't, because the Packers wanted it. Caved on cool. That was an excuse for Congress <laughs> to cave on cool. Okay. The reason Congress caved on cool is because they were stupid enough to even sign NAFTA and to approve NAFTA. Yeah. NAFTA was a horrible trade agreement, and it was all about multinational interests, and and uh, and it was really to the to the disadvantage of producers in Mexico and producers. Uh, in in the United States, the other yeah. stupid thing Congress did is they they joined the WTO. The WTO again is 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 operated by multinational corporations for their benefit, at the expense of the the people, the citizens of the various countries that are signed on, and so Congress absolutely has got to has got to withdraw from WTO. I mean, well, you must when, be when loving Trump right now then to to a global. Uh, you know, trading organization yeah. that's that that's controlled by multinational corporations. You know that threatens our national security and our sovereignty. We've got to withdraw from WTO, and we've got to renegotiate NAFTA so it so it works for the people, not the corporations. Well, I, I'm with you on that. I can't say that I completely agree with withdrawing from the WTO because I think that places us at quite a disadvantage uh, in the sense that just as withdrawing from TPP, um, it means that somebody else is going to fill that vacuum. And uh, I don't think it's great for American markets to do that. But I, well, I well, certainly Katie, understand I your perspective. I think your you perspective. think the global markets are serving people, and they aren't. The global markets are serving the corporations who orchestrate trade. What we need to do is go back to feeding ourselves. And every other country in, in the world needs to also have that ability to feed themselves. Yeah. And what agriculture has become globally is a mining operation. It's, right. an, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraction operation. So we go into a country, we destroy their soils, we, we pump their water and, and their precious yep. water to produce products Corn below and soy. cost of production. Yep. We, we exploit their people. We abuse the animals and we maximize profits to corporations. I, I couldn't. I just, you know, I just wrote the update to the jungle. Did you know that, Mike? My book is coming out in in April, and I will send well, you a copy because well, Katie, it covers I, I all of that, that stuff, dude. Make the case that we have made a full return to the jungle. Yes, and I have. We have. <laughs> I did make that case. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, something that I find very unusual and perplexing, and I know you're such an expert on this, but can you explain to the listeners why it is that processors have no obligation to disclose price prior to purchasing? I'm, I'm tr- I want to make sure I, I get that properly, but... but- isn't it true that as a, as whether you're a poultry farmer, a hog farmer, or a cattle farmer, rancher, you when you bring your stuff to slaughter, they don't tell you until after the fact, essentially, how much money you're going to make. Am I correct in that assumption? Well, I know yeah, that's true in but, poultry. You know, when we talked earlier about why I started Ranch Foods Direct, we yeah. talked about litigation, which has failed. You know, we won that lawsuit against Tyson IBP. The jury awarded us one point two eight billion dollars, billion dollars, and the judge reversed the jury verdict. Uh, We went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they refused to hear it in favor of hearing the Anna Nicole Smith family feud case. Oh, my God. And so there was some horrible precedent set. The judge was in Tyson's pocket. The the appeals court's judges were in Tyson's pocket, and we simply couldn't win. So we've lost every all of our litigation. We've, We've lost also at the legislative level. And so we passed 
an important law called mandatory price reporting. And man, we're gonna we're gonna expose the preferences that are being paid to certain cattle feeders that are willing to give the packer their cattle, uh, the incentives that, that are unfairly paid to these big cattle feeders. We're going to uh-huh. expose that. We're going to expose uh, much of the uh, discrimination that's going on and unjust practices that are going on through this mandatory price reporting law. So we're all very excited about it. We got it through Congress. And then we went to, into rulemaking. Uh-huh. And everything that we intended to get through the legislation got reversed in rulemaking. And so all of these contracts, these special sweetheart deals that the big meat packers were making with big feedlots to depress the prices for the for the industry now were marked as confidential and weren't required to be reported. Wow. And today today we've got big feedlots that are out there selling cattle and at the end of the year in December they get a kickback. Uh-huh. So much a pound for every every pound of the animal that they have sold to the packer. Well, none of those prices are reported. So wow. we, we have basically we do not have a market anymore. The market died when yeah. when we lost our our competition in the industry and why we even have a futures exchange at all is is absolutely beyond my understanding if there is no cash market there cannot be a futures price and but the packers and the big commodity traders use the futures to mentally condition sellers of livestock and sellers of grain to sell below their cost of production and and, and so we don't have markets anymore Mandatory price reporting was reversed during rulemaking. Country of origin labeling. We thought we had a, something really great there when yep. we first le- uh, legislated that. And what they did in rulemaking with country of origin labeling is, is we've really never had it. All they did was apply it to retail and only on whole muscle cuts and, and, and on ground beef. If they yep. added salt and pepper or further processed it in any way, it didn't have to be reported. And none of the half of the meat that sells through wholesale had to be reported on price either. And so it didn't honestly help us a lot, but we had something. And today we've got nothing. And, and so it, it just another example of how the multinational corporations rung Congress. Our congressmen work for the people who put money in their pocket, and that is multinational corporations. Yeah. They own our Congress. We do not have a democracy that's controlled by the citizens. It is now owned and fully controlled by multinational corporations. I completely and, agree and, with you, Mike. Totally. Absolutely, 100%. Completely agree. These Congress will do anything that their overlords will tell them to. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, as we talk about consolidation in the market and um, sort of the antitrust um, problems that, that should, I mean, there should be antitrust suits going all over. But right now there's a big one pushing through the poultry industry. I know you've seen this. Um, do you feel like uh, the cattle market is as um, has been colluding on price in the same way that the poultry industry is is now being discovered to have been doing so for the last fifteen years, or is it somehow a sli- a different mechanism that they get away with than than the rest of the the meat industry? Well, the poultry industry for forty years has is, is been in, vertically integrated and yeah. gotten worse and worse as time passed to where now it is fully controlled by essentially four big companies, including right. Tyson and yep. and Pilgrim's Pride and. Sanderson and, 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 and so and yeah. they're being named in a suit because of the Georgia dock. Yeah. <laughs> they found out that these guys were were manipulating the price on 
on chickens, but also at the retail level. So it, it, they were they were colluding on what they were paying poultry growers. Uh, who are losing money and been unfairly treated for so long, yeah. and then at the same time they were manipulating the price at retail, and 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 so it's different, a little bit different in the cattle business. In the cattle business, what we've got is four meat packers who collude and and cooperate rather than compete. I in see. nineteen in about nineteen seventy five, when Hughes Bagley was a vice president for IBP, uh, the he, he reported to me that the Boston Consulting Group did a study. And their finding was uh, that IBP should cooperate with the other big packers if they wanted to do better. And, and that's, Hughes said that's exactly what IBP did, is they, uh-huh. they cooperated with, with the Cargill and, and Montfort companies, which then eventually became JBS right. and, and Cargill. And they actually put the, the small guys out of business and, and were able then to dictate price back down the line to the cattle producer. But back then, the retailers weren't so big, mm-hmm. and the packer was really the man in charge. They, they stood right. there between the, the, the producer on one hand and the retailer on the other, and they dictated price both directions. Well, now we've got the Walmarts, the Krogers, right. the Safeways that are bigger than the packers. I mean, the, the Walton family controls more than 40%, more wealth than 40% of Americans. <laughs> and, and so, and so we we've got a situation today to where Walmart can push down on any of the big meat packers, yeah. and then those meat packers are in a position where they can dictate price down the line. Right. Had there been competition uh, to the meat packer, they couldn't do that. And so I, I I look at it that you know it's like it's it's like robbing the bank. The big retailers are robbing the bank, and the meat packers are driving the getaway car. So really, <laughs> nice it's analogy. a partnership. <laughs> yeah. And until we break yeah. up this seriously highly concentrated power, there is not a damn thing we can do about it. No, I agree. And, and, and Congress is, is the only ones that can do it. Congress has to wake up and decide they want to work for Americans instead of multinational corporations. Well, until you guys can give them the same kind of kickbacks and campaign contributions that the big packers are giving them, I don't think that's going to happen. But let me ask you this. Do you guys, I know there's a bunch of different groups. There's RCAF, there's your group, there's, you know, there, there's a whole series of, of smaller groups um, like yourselves who are still independent ranchers. Do you guys go to Congress the way the NCBA and the MA and the American Meat Institute do for like a week at a time and fan out across those congressional offices and make your case? I mean, are you able to do that? Because no, because no, we just don't have the money to send people to Washington. But I mean, I and, would and, literally do it for you NCBA, for free. I would do yeah, it for you. I mean, this you. is one of the most offensive things <laughs> that you'll ever hear. The NCBA uses the cattleman's money. Oh, I know. Checkoff to go to Washington and lobby against the cattlemen in favor yeah. of policies that are that are good for big meat packers right. and big retailers. Right. And, and so we basically, as cattle producers, are forced to buy our own hanging rope. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, that's kind of like, that's what I was kind of driving at. Like, I know you guys don't want to produce in the checkoff program. So how do you get out of doing it? I mean, don't, or, doesn't the USDA require that everyone who produces cattle participate in a checkoff program? Yes, they do. It, it, it's mandatory, and it's a right. tax. It's a tax. And, and, you know, we've been fighting the checkoff for a long time. And not so much the checkoff, but the way NCBA uses those dollars right. to promote an industrially 
industrial vertically integrated model, much like poultry, yep. on the on the beef producer. And and so we've been fighting the NCBA's control of the checkoff is what we've really been fighting. None of us probably would argue that it's it's a bad thing to do research and 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 to promote your product. Uh, but but doggone it, uh, when they divert those dollars and 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 put it towards lobbying, which we are absolutely convinced that NCBA has done for a very long time. Also true in the hog business, also oh, true sure. in the they dairy business. It. These checkoffs yeah. have been diverted to, to really work against the very people that are producing the commodity. And, and so we, we are, we've got a lawsuit right now in the federal court in D.C. to force USDA to give us the documentation and all of the, all of the, evidence uh, that that was brought out when they did the study uh, about how you, the checkoff was being handled right. uh, between uh, with with NCBA. So you're and, in other words so, you're asking for an accounting. So that, that should resolve sometime in March. Right. But we we know that that in some of the preliminary reports from the investigation of the OIG, the Office of Inspector General that there was some bad things happening with our checkoff, mm-hmm. and, and, and it came out in, in, their, in their investigation. And, and, but that never got reported in, in the final report. In huh. fact, the first report that was put out by OIG, and it looked like it, they really were, they were favoring the NCBA in their report, it, it, they said, well, everything's fine. Uh-huh. And then, of course, of course we protested that, <laughs> and, and they withdrew that report and put out another report that it wasn't quite so friendly towards NCBA, mm-hmm. and we're still protesting that, and we mm-hmm. hope to get the actual mm-hmm. initial report, which we think will show a lot of, a lot of corruption and a lot, lot of misuse of beef checkoff funds. Uh, by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. So, so what are the issues you would like to see legislation address vis-a-vis the animal agriculture industry? Like if you could, you know, wave a magic wand and say to Congress, this is what I want, this is what will support cattle ranchers or, or animal, livestock uh, production across the country, what would be the things that would make a big difference to, to you and your cohort? Well, first, let's look at two pieces of legislation that are currently uh, being proposed in Congress. Okay. And, and, and in, in the Senate and the House. Uh, and this is the Booker, the Cory Booker bill and, right. and the Representative Lee bills that either make the beef checkoff voluntary mm-hmm. or, in fact, all checkoffs voluntary or put in some rules that will not allow any organization that lobbies to have any of the money or, or, or receive any of the funds from the checkoff programs. Those are two things that could happen right now that would help us. And by taking the money away from NCBA, Congress then would hear the voices of independent cattle producers and independent livestock producers much more clearly. Right now they say, well, the NCBA claims to represent these guys as well as the national pork producers, and everything must be fine because they, they, uh, you know, they don't have any problem. Right. And, and so the other thing that I would love to see is we've got to address the concentrated power problem. Yeah. Uh, and, and I want to break up the power of the big retailers and the big meat packers. Now, I know that's a big deal, I, and everybody laughs at that, saying, well, you're never, there's no way you're ever going to break up Walmart. But I simply want to put in some rules that disadvantage these companies over small operators and, and local regional food system-type structures. Right now, they are so overly advantaged 
that the small operators can't even get market access. Uh So there's some things I think we could do there. And if we go back to the 1900 uh, time frame when we we addressed the robber baron era. Right. There is legislation to do this. We, there's there's some there's some good guidance there on how we could address absolutely. this problem. It's called the Sherman Act. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, and the Patent and right. Stockyards Act. Exactly. Those I rules mean, are all there. They are all there. They're but, just not you know, enforced. One of the problems we had in the Packers and Stockyards Act case against Tyson yeah. was the judge applied Sir Sherman Clayton uh, rules really? for the jury. The jury instructions were impossible, uh, uh, but, but we still won the case. But we've just had some very bad judicial decisions in agriculture, uh-huh. and 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 it, and it sets some horrible precedent, like proof proof of uh, harm to competition. And, right. and you know, it's like telling a lady whose purse was stolen that you know it's not you're not going to have any relief because you can't prove every woman in the country with a purse didn't more it wasn't harmed. No, no, the damn my purse was stolen, and go get the guy. Well, no, you got to prove everybody with a purse. Was harmed, right? And right. so when when a meat packer steals from a chicken farmer, and and that chicken farmer goes to court, he has got to prove that every chicken farmer in America lost as a result of that misweighing of chickens by Tyson, right? And and that, so these are and and, it, and the other really awful one is if a packer has a business justification. By God, they can do anything they want. Right, and it's not hard to prove a business justification from, from the point of view of their bottom line and their obligations towards their shareholders and so forth. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Now, so just, we have we like really two minutes. Better decisions, we do. But the problem is our courts are stacked with these dereg judges, yeah. starting from the Reagan administration. Right. You know, and 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 I really, That's I really again. get off on these. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt that, that we have got some terrible, terrible regulations. Yeah. But we've also got some that, by gosh, need need enforced and, and aren't. Yeah. For you know, even like the USDA, USDA considers them uh, themselves partners with with the global meat packers, uh, and, and clear, they yeah. don't see that sort of relationship with the independent small operators that are out there trying to provide local and regional processing for people. Mm-hmm. They see them as someone to be regulated, the heavy hand of regulation, mm-hmm. where the big meat packers get away with with you know, selling all kinds of product that's contaminated. And, and so they look the other way at the big industry, and they overly regulate and abusively regulate the small producers. That's right. And, and, so, and so we need we need government to just start working for the people again. It's very simple. And I tell you, we got a clean house in Washington. We've got to fire Congress. And, and we've got to replace them with some good people. And, and I don't care if you're running, if you're a local person running for your school board. We need new people to yeah. represent Americans as citizens. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think we should probably wrap it up there because we're about out of time. I was going to ask you if you had a quick moment to talk about Sonny Perdue. Um, but I think we already know what your opinion is of him. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty disappointed. I, I know, you know, really, isn't yeah, that so disappointing? We, we need yeah. family. We need family farm agriculture yeah. to feed this country as well yeah. as every other country in the world needs to be able to feed themselves in a yeah. way that cares about the resource and and the people who live in those countries, including our own. That the people benefit from this wonderful, 
wealth-creating enterprise called agriculture. Right now, we're being treated like coal miners. Yeah, you are. And um, so you have one more minute to promote yourself shamelessly. Tell people where they can learn more about Mike Calicrate, Calicrate Beef, and uh, Ranch Direct Foods. Um, Absolutely. If you just go to (laughs) MikeCalicrate.com. And it's C-A-L-L-I-C-R-A-T-E dot com. You can look at my blog and get a lot more of, of kind of what I'm thinking on our food system issues. And yep. then you can also look at the enterprises that, that I'm involved in to try to make a difference, you know, from an economic and financial perspective. Uh, but, but basically, I get up every day trying to increase income at the farm and ranch gate and give consumers good food to eat. That's right. All right. Amen, my friend. Thank you very much for joining me today, Mike. I hope you'll come back again. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, thanks to my sponsor, Chef's Collaborative. Uh, and thank you for my to my engineer, Dave, who's like always right on the money there. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.